Chapter 17 of Up the River by Oliver Optic The Sylvania in Ambush This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. As soon as we were in the river, the Mississippi pilot was discharged, and we continued on our voyage up the stream. We did not know by which pass the islander would come in, and we kept on till daylight in the morning. We then ran up to the shore, which was covered with small trees. The place we had chosen was at a bend of the mighty stream, where we could not be seen until the islander was close upon us. We made fast to a tree and sent Hop Tosford ashore to watch at the bend for the approach of the other steamer. As the water was deep enough for the islander in whatever part of it she went, I thought she would come within a few yards of our position, as that would lead her upstream by the shortest way. Our passengers had spent their time in the usual manner of the voyage, and one day at sea was very like any other day when the weather was fine. We had passed out of the fog before midnight, and the two days on the gulf had been as pleasant as possible. Some of them landed on the high bank of the river where we had made bass, but we required to keep within call. In the pilot house we had voted that it was not best to say anything about Cornwood's relations with Nick, and none of the passengers even knew that Nick was on board of the Islander. We simply told them that we had lost the other steamer in the fog, and we were afraid we should miss the islander in New Orleans if we delayed to look for her in the fog. The pilot took the spare berth in the forecabin and made himself entirely at home on the steamer, as I desired he should. We had arranged our plan for the capture of the islander when she came up the river and none of us had any doubts in regard to her coming. Captain Cayo was to have the duty of taking possession of the person of Cornwood, and Buck Lingley was to do the same kindness to Nick. Colonel Shepard was to be close at hand to deal with Captain Blastblow if he objected to the proceedings. All the forenoon passed away without a sight of the islander. We dined and began to inquire if there was any way by which the islander could get to New Orleans without passing the point where we had taken position. We could find none she was likely to take. We were beginning to believe our well-laid plan had miscarried when Ben Bowman, who was on the lookout for the prize, hastened on board with the intelligence that the islander was within four miles of us. We had covered our topmast with green branches to prevent the people on the islander from suspecting our presence before she turned the bend. A little point covered with trees a short distance below us concealed the hull of the Sylvania, and I was satisfied that she could not be seen by Cornwood before it would be too late to keep out of our way. All hands on deck, I said to Washburn as soon as Ben Bowman had announced the approach of the runaway steamer. All on deck, sir, except Ben Bowman, returned the mate as soon as he had given the call. The second engineer had returned to the point to observe and report upon the movements of the islander. 
he informed me that the steamer seemed to be making a shortest course the bends of the stream would permit, and she was headed for the point behind which the Sylvania was concealed. I had arranged my plan of operations. Our steamer was headed up the stream and held by a single hawser leading to the bowsprit's bits. We had passed the rope around the tree and made the end fast on board so that we could let go without anyone going on shore to do so. The strong current of the river would carry the steamer's head away from the shore, and we had only to dart out alongside the islander and make fast to her. We had rigged our fenders so that neither steamer was likely to be damaged by a collision. Ben Bowman and Buck Lingley were to carry a line on board of the prize and make fast the instant we came alongside of her. Colonel Shepard was to get on board of the islander as quickly as he could and give his orders to Captain Blastblow. I did not apprehend any difficulty in carrying out the program. I was confident that the captain of the runaway vessel would respect the orders of his owner. We had banked our fires in the morning so that the noise of escaping steam need not warn the islander of the presence of another steamer. As soon as Ben reported the runaway within four miles, Moses Bricklin had caused the fires to be replenished, and he calculated upon having a full head of steam when we were ready to run out from our hiding place. In about a half an hour from the time the islander was discovered, Ben Bowman came on board. We could hear the clang of her screw by this time. I stationed Ben at the hawser and directed him to let go and haul in the rope as quickly as possible when I gave the word. Buck Lingley and Landy Perkins were to help make quick work of it. Captain Cayo was stationed where he could make a sure thing of the capture of Cornwood as soon as he leaped on board. Nearer and nearer came the islander to the point. As soon as she showed her bow spirit beyond it, I was to give the word to cast off. I could see nothing to prevent the success of the elaborate plan we had made, and I was satisfied that Colonel Shepard would be in possession of his steam yacht within five minutes. Let go and haul in, I called a buck bowman at the hawser. The assistant engineer did not permit an instant to lapse before he and his two helpers were hauling on the rope with all their might. The moment I saw that the hawser was running free, I rang the gong to go ahead, with the helm hard a-starboard. I heard the screw turn a couple of times, and then it stopped. I did not quite understand this. Next thing I saw was Moses rushing on the forecastle. The propeller is fouled in a root or a rope, Alec, exclaimed he. Back her a stroke or two, and it may clear itself. I rang to back her as he rushed aft to the engine room. By this time the islander was fairly abreast of us, and I feared that our elaborate scheme had failed. But we were seventy-five miles from New Orleans, and there was time enough for as lively a race as ever was seen on the Father of Waters. I rang again to stop the engine and then to start it. It went hard, and I heard some snapping near the stern. It was evident that the screw had been fouled in a root, 
and I was afraid it might have been twisted into the propeller. I stopped the engine again. When I found the screw did not move freely, I ran aft, and found Top Hosford had climbed over the stern with a boat hook in his hand, and was punching in the direction of the propeller. It's a crocodile, he exclaimed. There it goes. I saw the creature rise to the top of the water. Hop was English, and Englishmen are apt to call all Saurians by this name. I should not have expected to see the real alligator so near the salt water, for I had heard that only crocodiles proper lived or thrived in salt water. It may have been washed out from some bayou by the high water which was prevailing at this time, or it may have been the real crocodile. I did not stop to reason about this case in natural history, but as soon as I saw the mangled reptile, which was about ten feet long on the surface of the water, I hastened to the pilot house and started the screw again. This time it moved freely, and I concluded that the saurian had been resting on the blades of the propeller when it began to turn. By this time the islander had made about a quarter of a mile, as I judged, against the swift current. But there was now no chance for her to dodge us. Our fires were in excellent condition, for the firemen had been forcing them for twenty minutes. A miss hit, said Captain Cayo coming into the pilot house, when it was clear that the capture would not come off immediately. I suppose that alligators went down to drink when we came up on the bank of the river, I replied. But he was the worst of it, for the screw has smashed him. I saw the saurian floating motionless down the stream, and the screw had evidently made short work of him. I'm sorry the rascal interfered with our affair, added the pilot. The game is not up yet. We shall have an opportunity to learn which is the faster steamer, I replied. The current must be running five or six miles an hour here, said Captain Cayo. About five miles an hour is the usual rate of the Mississippi, I replied. But it runs just as fast for the Islander as it does for the Sylvania. That's true, and I doubt if either steamer is making more than six or seven knots an hour. The islander is shearing off from us towards the middle of the river, and that is where she is making her mistake. Why so? asked the pilot. Because the current is swifter in the middle of the stream than near the banks, for the friction of the shore has some effect on its flow. That is bringing it down to a fine point, said Captain Cayo, laughing, for he was entirely unused to river navigation. I kept the Sylvania as near the shore as I deemed it prudent to go, while the islander went in the middle of the river, as if her captain desired to avoid falling into any possible trap. The wind was southerly and quite fresh. I directed the mate to shake out the four-square sail, and the fore topsail. In twenty minutes, by the clock in the pilot house, we were abreast of the islander, but half a mile from her, for she was still in the middle of the river. By this time, Captain Blastblow evidently saw his mistake in not setting his square sails, for the wind was blowing about half a gale. I put the helm about a half a point near to the course of the other steamer. I immediately noticed that her pilot made a corresponding change in her helm. 
Moses kept an eye on her and understood the game perfectly. I did not attempt to run any closer to her, for a turn in the river would soon bring the Sylvania alongside of her. If the vessel attempted to go any nearer the shore, she would have to stand out again in order to pass the bend above. In a word, the islander was cornered. Captain Blasplow could not help realizing the situation of the steamer he sailed. Too late he sent his men aloft to loose the square sail. Before they could get the gasket off, I had to port the helm to prevent striking the other steamer. All our hands were in position to do the parts before assigned to them. I kept a sharp watch upon the actions of the islander to meet any change in her course. I saw Captain Blasplow in the pilot house at the wheel. He looked very nervous and disturbed, and I did not wonder at it. Sheer off, or you will be a foul of us, shouted the captain from the runaway steamer. At the same moment, he rang his gong to stop her. I rang mine also the moment I heard the other. Moses was standing by his lever and wheel, and I think the Sylvania was stopped before the islander. Of course, we continued to go ahead under the impulse of the momentum given the two boats. Very cautiously, I put the helm to starboard, and in a moment, the two boats touched each other but without any shock or crash. The two hands assigned to the duty sprang upon the forecastle of the islander and made fast the rope they carried to the bow spirit's bits. At the same instant, Captain Cayo and Buck Lingley leaped into the waist of the steamer. I saw Cornwood and Nick on the hurricane deck, though they began to make their exit as soon as we came alongside. The pilot knew his men well, and before the Floridian could leave the hurricane deck, he had taken him rather unceremoniously by the collar. Buck did not know Nick Boomsby, but the simple fact that he was with Cornwood satisfied him that he was the person he wanted. I saw that Cornwood began to look magnificent and to show fight, while Nick acted like a sick kitten. Colonel Shepard hastened to follow the pilot on board and met Captain Blasplow coming out of the pilot house to ascertain what the matter was. End of chapter.